So I thought I'd uh, play you a song. In the, well, I mean, not me. I'm not going to be <laughs> tempting though that is. Um, partly because it's nice, right? <laughs> partly because it's by one of the great poets of our age, Leonard Cohen. And partly because uh, there's often a, you know, there's a, a what we've spoken about as a kind of sensory sensitivity that's there in retreat, when actually music can be particularly delightful. Partly because the song is evocative in terms of its mood, and also because it speaks very much to themes that I then would offer some reflections on. It speaks about love and mystery and the indivisibility of life. It was, it was written by Leonard Cohen in the, during the six or seven years that he spent as a Zen monk in California. And naturally, maybe I'll just uh, recite the words so you get to hear them in spoken form before I play the song. The song is called Love Itself. I'm going to check that I can remember the words, but generally I do. The light came through the window, straight from the sun above. And there, inside my little room, there came the rays of love. In streams of light, I clearly saw the dust you seldom see, out of which the nameless makes a name for one like me. All busy in the sunlight, the flecks did float and dance, and I was tumbled up with them in formless circumstance. I'll try to say a little more. Love went on and on until it reached an open door. Then love itself was gone. Then I came back into my room. The room, it looked the same, but there was nothing left between the nameless and the name. I'll try to say a little more. Love went on and on until it reached an open door. Then love itself was gone.
so I'm tempted to just end there. <laughs> Thank you. Human life, human longing, human spirit, human depth can all be described in terms of love. That's why we're here. Meditation is really an expression of being willing to love life as finely, as closely, as intimately as possible. We might think of meditation practice as intimacy training. (coughs) Training in being more and more intimate with the depth of life. And yet, sometimes the sense of love can be a little split off from the way we're practicing. We talk about awareness a lot. And Actually, of course, awareness and love are synonyms of each other. To be aware of body, to be aware of experience. We've also described as to be contactful, to take care of experience, to be intimate with experience, to be curious about experience. Those are expressions that one could equally describe as expressions of love. Contact, intimacy, care, curiosity. As much as we would describe them as aspects of awareness. But partly, love is a rather charged word for us culturally. We, we, uh, our culture adds a lot of associations to love that, are, that make it the words stand out as seeming to be exclusively about romantic love. And of course, beautiful, exquisite, though that expression is, it's only one reflection, one refraction of love. It's also, love is also about vulnerability, tenderness. And because of the vulnerability vulnerability of the tender heart, the open heart, the undefended heart that we've spoken about, you know, in whatever ways we've learned to be defended, armoured, hesitant, doubtful, suspicious, afraid, resistant to our experience, 
to that extent, love feels risky. And one of the ways that riskiness tends to come out in this kind of practice, as I say, is that the sense of love tends to get a bit split off. We make it into something separate. That happens in Buddhist practice quite a lot. I notice, you know, often speaking with people, sometimes reading forms and coming here, when people speaking about their intentions and going on retreat, I want to do some insight meditation, some awareness practice. And I'm going to do some loving-kindness practice, some meta-practice. As if those things exist in different worlds, as if those things are, are, are different. And of course I know, and maybe you know from your own experience, that what people might call meta-practice, loving-kindness practice, focusing in a certain way on a, a quality of warmth of heart, generosity of spirit, and the, the, the formal ways that there are to cultivate those qualities can be very, very helpful for people, healing for people. And while that's true, I think it's also important that the quality of loving, caring, intimacy, uh, vulnerability isn't split off. Care Love is an integral part of awareness practice. If it's not kind, it's not awareness. Right? Sometimes we have this kind of rather dry vision of observing my experience. Breath is coming in, breath is going out, body is here, body is like this. And so hence the encouragement to inhabit, to be intimate with, to care for, to allow. The image that the Buddha uses to describe that quality of of attention, loving attention, loving awareness, is the image of uh, a mother holding her beloved only child. And the Metta Sutta, the Sutta on loving attention, the teaching on loving attention. He says, to hold experience just, just as a mother would hold her beloved only child, in just such a way should one cherish all that is, cherish all one finds, attend to all one finds, care for all one finds. And even if in your own personal experience, for some people the image of loving mother particularly if you had an experience, a a, a disruptive or painful experience with your own mother, where you don't have access to a kind of the memory of that kind of tender, loving attention. Even there's a sense of an an idealised mother figure, an archetypal mother. Sometimes you might sit in a park and watch the way a mother holds her beloved child particularly when the child's in distress. And those of you who are parents, you know, the way you attend to a child in distress, you don't really need to do anything. You just need to be there attentively, kindly. And the presence itself, the being there and the holding is by itself reassuring, soothing. It invites the child to... 
to kind of come to rest. And that's a very helpful image for the quality of attention we can give to holding our experience, particularly holding our distressed experience, our agitated experience, our painful experience. How easily we get busy trying to do something with it, or do something to it, to fix it, or to, um, uh, or to silence it, or to make it go away, or to repair it. You know, as if, to use that image again, as if the mother could, you know, if you're trying to fix the child or stop it from crying. <coughs> Those of you who are parents, you know that doesn't work, right? But presence, tender, attentive, caring, by itself allows experience to settle. It's part of the nature of our dichotomizing mind that we split things up, that we split things off. That we speak about awareness and or love. And we speak about, uh, uh, um, head, my head's telling me, and my heart's tell, but my heart's telling me something else. Body and mind, existence and non-existence, like we were exploring yesterday. No, that's the way. That's the way. Linear mind, dual mind, dualistic mind, conceptual mind. Concepts only exist for us in terms of the the thing and the opposite: the is or the isn't, the existent or the non-existent, the self or the not-self. There was, a, you know, the Hamlet soliloquy: "To be or not to be," which expresses something of that duality, right? When it was translated into Japanese, and then somebody translated it, or I think using a, what's that Google Translate or something, was translated automatically from the Japanese back into English, and it came out as so it had gone through the translation. It came back as, "It is or it isn't, isn't it?" <laughs> <laughs> to be or not to be—that is the question. It is or it isn't, isn't it? That's a good dharmic statement. Especially the last bit, isn't it? It seems, it seems like we've got no option other than to dichotomize. It is, or it isn't. <coughs> isn't it? And that, that bit of doubt, that bit of the suggestion of another possibility, a way of holding experience that doesn't descend into dichotomy, this or that. There's a very famous line by a, uh, an Indian teacher of the last century, the 20th century, died about 30 years ago, Nisargadatta Maharaj. And maybe you know it's a very famous line. And he says, Love tells me I am everything. Wisdom tells me 
I'm nothing. And between these two, my life flows. You've probably heard it, uh, seen it a hundred times on Facebook already. It's so famous. But there's something very beautiful in that line. Even though the sublime experience of wisdom tells, uh, love tells me I'm everything. But I don't, at the same time, wisdom tells me I'm nothing. Between these two, this is the most significant line, between these two, life unfolds, my life flows, life unfolds. In the ambiguity between everything and nothing, in the ambiguity between love and wisdom, without landing anywhere, without latching onto anything, without dichotomizing. Equally at home, in the sense of everything, expansive, all-inclusive, full, as in nothing, gone. Silent, empty. We separate out our experience then in these different ways. And of course, there's some use, right? So, of course, there's a great use, validity to being able to. What's the word? Delineate, to point to different aspects of experience. Love and wisdom, everything, nothing. But to see how stuck we get in the dichotomies. We delineate, here we've been delineating in terms of our experience. Mm -hmm. The delineation of the three, you know, these three different kind of lenses of bodily experience through which we meet life. Body, heart, mind. And there's no actual separation there. Try and find a body separate from feelings or separate from mind. Ridiculous. The only thing, the way you can find body separate from feelings and mind is a corpse. And you can't know the experience of a corpse. We can't separate mind and feel, uh, body and feelings and mind. But, of course, we can orientate to the, the nuances of experience that those words suggest. Body. The body center down in the belly where we've been focusing our attention. The nuances of the way we experience through body are the nuances of immediacy. Solidity, hereness, sense of vibrant, sensory, alive, dynamic, present, grounded experience. The nuances of feeling life, heart center energetically, are the nuances of feeling. Emotion, receptivity, openness, 
vulnerability, tenderness, allowing, making room for. The nuances of mind, the head centre, wisdom, and the nuances of space, intuition, clarity, vastness, freedom. And we're working, of course, with all those nuances. And there's a certain kind of um, usefulness. I thought just maybe to underline the way we're working. Somebody asked, uh, a couple of you have asked during the days, why all this stuff about body? Why pay so much attention to body? But there's something foundational about the nuances of experience. Body, mind, heart... (coughs) Wisdom, love, embodiment, they arise in an inseparable way in this, what we've been calling the last day or two, this field of experience. And yet, in sorting through all the inseparable nuances of this field of experience, it's helpful to establish that sense, first of all, to establish the sense of ground body as a foundational centre of experience, visceral, immediate, tangible. And as we've been doing in the progression of our meditation practice, once there's a certain stability, a certain grounded embodiment in experience, actually we start to notice the nuances of the heart centre, the feelings that are there, the grab that we've been exploring, the demands, defences and distractions. And the capacity in opening up to the, the nuances of feeling to kind of to digest the emotional residue of our life, to make sense of the different movements towards and away from, to allow that to digest metabolize, clarify. And as the stuff of our personal life and history clarifies and frees up, there starts to be naturally more space, more clarity, more room in consciousness, more recognition of the spaciousness and freedom of consciousness. properties more of wisdom of the head centre so we delineate as a kind of we delineate our experience in these ways as a kind of device as 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 a map if you like as a way to explore experience and yet even in the delineation, the recognition that there's no body, there's no feelings, there's no mind, as, as things, as something I can separate and find and point to, there's just this process. 
there's flow, there's dynamism, there's movement. As what we have been also calling the edgeless experience of sensation and sound and all the sensory inputs of life. An edgeless, fluid unfolding. But because of the, the way you know, our culture is, and the way most of our, you know, the kind of general level of uh, consciousness development among people, we don't refer to ourselves as this edgeless dynamic fluidity <laughs> here. Because people would think we're nuts. So we talk about body and feelings and mind because that's the kind of, we've got a more or less agreed level of understanding about what those things mean. And yet this practice is the invitation, really, for uh, to evolve beyond the general layer of our level of understanding of our sort of cultural agreements. And so even though we might not use that kind of language every day, we start to get closer to the truth of understanding our experience in that way as an edgeless, fluid unfolding. We speak about experience and we refer to experience and we track our experience in terms of its beginnings and middle beginnings and durations and endings. Attending to the breath in that way, noticing the the arising of a breath, the duration of a breath, the end of a breath, the expansion of the in breath, the relaxation of the out breath, the stillness in that moment between breaths. It's also a kind of you know, it's just a delineation. Experience is beginning less, end less. Edgeless. Like I think we also said a couple of days ago, we can't remember the beginning of this human experience. We can't anticipate the end of this human experience. We certainly can't conceive of what there was before I can remember what there was. And we certainly can't conceive of what there might be after I can't experience what there will be. And yet within that flow, one finds arisings and durations and fadings that one can pay attention to, that we can learn about the nature of the fluidity of experience in Sometimes when attention is rather, quite, rather refined and when there's a real resting in a certain kind of uh, silence and spaciousness where the productions of mind are very thin or few and far between or without much charge to them. And sometimes we can really notice the beginning of a thought just a thought just starting to come into life. 
the beginning of the, the taking birth of some aspect of experience. But there isn't always that refinement of attention. There isn't always that, that refinement of mind state. <coughs> so generally, in the flow of changing experience, it's easier to pay attention to endings. Everything ends. Everything dies. Everyone you love, you'll lose. Or they'll lose you. You know, it's not a very glamorous thought or reflection. But hey, it's the truth. You know, most of our reflections aren't very glamorous, actually. We've been looking in a lot at greed, hatred, delusion, demands, defenses, distractions, death, endings. Yet there's something potent, something remarkable, something important, something to do very deeply with love, and acknowledging the truth of endings. <clears throat> Suzuki Roshi, very beloved Japanese teacher, of recent times as well. And speaking about non-attachment, one of the kind of chestnuts of Buddhism, he says non-attachment isn't about giving things up. It's about really recognizing that everything ends. Really recognizing that everything ends. And it's very powerful to pay attention to endings. Not just to the absence. But as we notice that the way a breath finishes the way a sound stops. The way a thought fades. The way everything ends. We notice not just the absence of that thing, that moment, that experience fading, but also we start inevitably to notice the space in which that fading echoes. The wide open, free space in which everything comes to rest. Some friends of mine have made an app, a mobile phone app. It's called Rewire. I'm doing a bit of promo for it now. But it's all about endings. And it's, uh, it's uh, a meditation training app where one uses the music on, your, on iTunes, on your iPhone or whatever, 
And every few seconds, in, a, in an irregular way, the music just disappears, just fades out. And, you, and the idea is you tap the screen every time you notice it fade. And one thing it does is, you know, it stops your mind wandering so much. You start listening to music, you know you listen to music and then uh, drift off. But it keeps, yeah. And you tap. So one thing is that it, when any few second, after a few seconds when the music fades, it's a reminder to just really see where your attention is. But also you get to see a relationship with her. The disappearance. The ending. Fading. Dropping. Monks in Asia make a lot out of the practice of observing endings. Whether moment by moment like that, and particularly the practice of reflecting on this ending. Right? The inevitability of this ending. There's not much that I can say is inevitable in this life. I don't know very much about what's coming, but there's one definite certainty. There's only one certainty about the whole of the rest of this life that it's going to end. That's what the guy in the walking room is there to remind us of. One of my teachers was in in his monastery in Thailand was sitting with one of the monks who'd been a kind of elder brother to him and been a friend to him for years in the monastery as he was dying. And he said, as he was dying, he said to my teacher, I haven't been much use in this life. But when I'm gone, please put my skeleton in the Dharma hall. (laughs) And at least I can be of use in death to remind the other monks that this too, this is where they're headed. It's kind of that's the that's the kind of humour of uh, <laughs> Buddhist monks. <laughs> and you kind of you know we get uncomfortable around death. We turn away from death. <coughs> and yet, and yet, it's inevitability. Not just its inevitability, but the fact that it very probably won't be on our own terms. And we don't know when. We just hallucinate a, a far-offness to it. Without knowing. And you know, some of you here are here with serious illness. Life-threatening illness. The way that wakes us up to the truth of that inevitability. And so, when we, when we reflect on <coughs> death, end, the end of this life, and the mystery of what that even means, the ending of all that we love, and those that we love, the endings that just of experience slipping away moment by moment by moment. And then we might ask how to live in the light 
of that truth. How to, how to make a, a sane response, a, a, a wise response, a loving response to that truth. And yet actually the fact that everything is ending, when we really pay attention to it, it invites our love. To notice that everything is already disappearing reveals its fleeting preciousness. This life is already fading. How precious it is. This moment, this experience, this person, this beloved, this opportunity, whatever it is, is already fading. How precious it is. And whatever the, the, the variety of our experience, the love we find is invited in the same way. We spoke yesterday about these three qualities of experience, the pleasant, the unpleasant and the neutral, and the way they tend to, to uh, stimulate the demand for the pleasant, the defense of the unpleasant and the distraction from the neutral. But when we really see, when we contemplate, when we make room for the truth of endings, then that which is pleasant invites our love. We find ourselves delighting in the pleasant, enjoying, appreciating its beauty, the exquisiteness, the wonder, the artistry, the miracle of that which we love. And the, the, the needy, greedy, demanding, uh, clinging on starts to look rather crude and desperate. Acknowledging the end of, the, of that which we love invites us to enjoy, to delight in, to appreciate. And that which is difficult, that which is unpleasant, that which we tend to recoil from, defend against, wish to escape from. When we really see, when we contemplate the fact that it's already fading, then love is the response. A kind of gracious tolerating of what's here. The recognition that I don't like this, but I can love it whether I like it or not. But loving what is doesn't have very much to do with whether I like it or not. It's about my willingness to pay attention, to include the truth of the moment. And my experience is neither one thing or the other. Neutral. And our tendency is to kind of dismiss it, ignore it, turn away from it, belittle it. When we realize that, oh, whatever's here is already fading. And the response of love draws out the remarkableness, 
of that which I'd not see, uh, that I'd withdrawn my sensitivity from. We see that, uh, what's that line about the world in a grain of sand and the ocean in a drop of water, something. One sees that that which I dismissed, like we were saying the other day about the, the breath when the nun was held underwater. How easily, oh, this breath, oh, another breath, oh, another meditation. Oh, how many more till tea time? But this moment, this moment, that's the only one we have. This moment, that's the open doorway to love and wisdom, to fluid, edgeless unfolding. to a free participation in life. Everything's ending. Love it. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.